Hi there, this is the Guitar Speak podcast, episode number six. My name is Matt Wakeling. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you if you listened in, uh, if you tuned in last week to our interview with Brett Kingman. I had a really good time talking to Brett, and uh, a lot of you enjoyed the interview. So thank you for your feedback and uh, for sharing that around. Now, of course, you can listen to that interview with, with uh, Brett or any of our previous interviews, Michael Dolce, Michael Fix, Patrick Keegan from Pat Keegan Guitars, and uh, you can find those interviews at guitarspeakpodcast.libsyn.com. It's Libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N, so guitarspeakpodcast.libsyn.com. Now, we are on iTunes as well, or Stitcher. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. So check us out there. Come and say hello, because we love hearing from our listeners. In fact, one of our listeners, Jason King, will be featured in today's episode. Jason took up the challenge to download our backing track, which is exactly the music you can hear behind me speaking right here. And he jams some solos over it. And uh, Jason's going to close out today's interview, but I'll give you a little sneak peek here. Nice playing there, Jason. We will hear more of your soloing at the end of our episode. But now on to today's interview. I spoke to Michael Ross from Nashville, Tennessee recently. Now Michael, I've been following him for a while. He's a he's a journalist, so he's done a lot of writing for guitar magazines such as Guitar Player, which is where I first sort of saw his work. But he's also written for Premier Guitar. He's written a few books, and uh, he's had a long career as a as a guitarist, as a player, uh, playing a whole whole variety of styles, as you'll hear in our interview. In fact, here's some of Michael's uh, blues playing. Man, he's wailing on this track called Trouble Guy. And this is posted under the name of Hoagie Guitar Michael. Let's check out a bit of his playing right here. good. Here's a more uh, Mark Knopfler-esque kind of track called Ride With Me. Mm-hmm. 
things I really like about Michael's uh, aesthetic is that he's into like conventional you know, guitar playing, electric, acoustic playing. But he's also a big fan of um, the avant-garde and experimental uh, avenues of guitar playing. So ambient stuff, um, extended technique players, uh, free impro guys, noise, noise sort of bass players. Michael actually performs under the name Prehab Nashville, doing ambient kind of based guitar stuff. In fact, here's a track, a bit of a track called Awake and Sing. This is uh, all guitar kind of textures that Michael's generated through various processing and effects. Michael has set up a website called Guitar Modern, dedicated to uh, following experimental and uh, outside-of-the-box guitar players, and he does a great job curating that site where he interviews players and posts concerts and uh, looks at different um, cutting-edge technology and gear. Anyway, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Ross. Michael Ross, thank you for joining me on the Guitar Speak podcast. My pleasure. Now, Michael, you've been living in Nashville for a few years. Did you move there um, for the music scene, for all the, the busyness of that? Well, I, I tell people I moved here because I heard they needed guitar players. But, <laughs> uh, that's a joke. And then I would say I, I moved here because the only thing they have more of than guitar players are singer-songwriters who need guitar players. Okay. So um, I've been, you know, I've done some playing with those people. Oddly enough, it was people I knew from New York and used to play with in New York um, so far. But um, no, I mean, we moved here mostly for quality of life. I've lived in New York off and on my whole life. I, I grew up around there, lived in Manhattan for about 12 years, moved to San Francisco for 12 years, moved back to Manhattan for 12 years. And my wife, grew up in South Dakota um, mostly, but she'd been living in New York for 20 years. And both of us had sort of had enough New York. I mean, I love New York and it's a great place and musically it's a great place. And, um, but it's a tough town, as anyone will tell you. And it gets tougher as you get older, just physically dealing with it every day. And it's changed. A lot of people, a lot of my friends who are still there are you know complain just like every place else in san francisco and now nashville every place is getting crowded and commercialized and you know but nashville still has the music scene i mean there's still like new york it's the only other city in the world i've ever been where you can go out any day of the week for the most part and see world-class playing largely for free wow just walk into bars all over town. Uh, give me one second. I'm going to shut the fan on. And um, so that part's been great in terms of the writing for the guitar magazines. Of course, it's been um, a bounty of guitar players to write about. There's some, as you can imagine, amazing ones down here. And, and, uh, and they're very easy to get to know. And 
and to uh, all happy to talk at length. So I've already covered, I guess, at least five or six for um, between premier guitar and guitar player. Yeah, awesome. Um, I definitely want to delve into your, your writing career, but um, when did you start playing yourself? I, well, I started on violin in the fourth grade, and then um, I played uh, tuba in high school. I marched in a marching band with Steve Tyler, actually. He was, <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> he was playing drums uh, in, uh, in my high school marching band. Yeah, That's very rough he's actually the guy. Yeah, he's actually the guy who turned me on to people like the Rolling Stones and the Pretty Things and the Yardbirds because I previously I'd been more into listening to jazz. Okay. And uh, I had started playing guitar, but I was playing sort of folk music, more folk music and country blues um, in high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, and my brother was playing electric guitar. He was younger, but he'd already started playing in bands. So I, I didn't start playing electric until college. Um, we had a jug band in college where I played, actually mostly played washboard and harmonica. Um and then I think they call them skiffle groups in England. I don't know what they call them in Australia, but uh, it was that kind of thing. And then uh, I decided in, after a couple of years of college, I mean, where I went to college, my education was the music that came through there. Um, I mean, Jimi Hendrix played in our gym, you know, to give you an idea. Wow. Uh, yeah. And the Who played in the gym and the band and Janis Joplin and, and that was just the big, the big shows. Um, oh in the lobby of the dorms, I saw Howling Wolf. I saw um, Jackson Brown. You know, people just playing in, in you know, small little concerts in the, in the lounges. So after a couple of years of that, I said, this is, this is really what I want to do. Um, so I dropped out of school, and um, it took me a while, but I started getting into playing. In, in New York, there's gaps in between. But my first professional gig was, I actually started late. I mean, I was 20, probably 22 maybe. And I started touring with a, um, a hotel band. Okay. A Sheridan, we, you know, we call them hotel bands. But that was my that was my music college. I mean, I had to play everything from Autumn Leaves to Smoke on the Water. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> and play smoke on the water at volumes for a hotel lounge so um thank god for the mxr distortion pedal that was uh okay yeah so what what yeah. um what period was this when was this happening this was that would have been the early 70s okay yep. then i dropped that i dropped out of um that band in springfield massachusetts to join an all-black soul band because that was my idea of heaven at yeah the time. wow i mean i grew up on that music and and uh, and but what I discovered is that the white clubs would not hire black bands to play black music. They would only hire white bands playing black music to play black music. That's crazy. Um, yeah, it was, it was I, I sort of figured out it was because black people wouldn't come to see a white band playing black music, but they would come to see a black band playing black music. And these white club owners didn't want to all of a sudden have a black club. OK. And, I'm not sure. I think that's the way it was working. Regardless, I got we weren't working very much, and I was starting to starve to death. And uh, <laughs> I got a call from a friend in New York, in Manhattan, to um, 
to come down and play country music, which I had never played. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had listened. I think I had a Buck Owens record. And he said, well, you played folk music. That's close enough. Well, I'll teach you how to do it. So we hit the first sort of country scare in New York. We call it. Um, there was a lot of work for okay. playing country music. This was like mid-70s, I guess. It was the urban cowboy era. Okay, yeah. And I think that was it. And we worked all the time I mean, in the Bronx, you know, the different boroughs in New Jersey and stuff like that. And that was, that was a lot of fun. We toured some of the army bases and did that kind of stuff. And then uh, moving right along, um, I, you know, I was in a couple of original bands trying to get record deals um, that didn't pan out. And then through a friend of mine, I got, um, I got a call to audition for this folk singer, Eric Anderson. Okay. Who was, uh, a lot of people don't know him, you know, younger people don't know him, but he was, after Dylan, he was probably one of the biggest folk singers in New York in the 60s, back in the 60s. But unfortunately, his career started at the top and went downhill from there in terms of career-wise because Brian Epstein was supposed to manage him and died just before he was going to do it. And and Eric, you know, like a lot of artists, could be his own worst enemy, but he was a great songwriter, and it was a great band. It was uh, Randy Trelante, who ended up being the other drummer in the band when they had two drummers, you know, with Levon Helm and those guys, and and this guy Rob uh, on bass, who was a genius musician. He played guitar better than I did. He played drums better than Randy did. He was one of those guys. But uh, that, you know, that was Eric during his wanting to be Jackson Brown and um, commercial phase, and it it didn't work out for him. And eventually, but I went to Norway with him a couple times and. We played around a few places in, in Woodstock, mostly. He was up in Woodstock. Okay. And then um, I guess we're moving into the 80s now, and my wife at the time and I were not happy in New York. I was working at uh, Rudy's Music Stop, which is a famous... That's the, yeah, shop. the classic... Uh... Was it yeah. Guitar Row or something? Do they call that? that yeah, area? 48th Street, where yeah. all, you know Manny's was back when all those music stores were there, and uh, it was very cool. I mean, everybody came in there, and I mean, I got to meet Lou Reed and Mark Knopfler used to hang out there and wait on customers. Um, <laughs> he used to wait on customers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He was. Uh, what he would he do? Kind of, he just hang out behind the counter. He was friends with Rudy, and he was friends with uh, Jack Sonny, who ended up playing in dire straits yeah yeah i remember jack being in the band yeah yeah he was actually just here last weekend okay uh yeah we've been friends since then and uh and mark would be hanging out back there if somebody needed (laughs) a set of strings he'd go get him a set of strings i mean he's a really nice guy that's Um, cool he he came out to see me play once when i was playing and he came to see a couple of bands i was playing and he was he was really nice um yeah, lots of cool. Brian Setzer came in all the time. Awesome. Um, you know, they all came through there. Um, but I was, you know, I mean, I still, I was working in a music store isn't what I wanted to be doing. Sure. And, and I was playing, you know, the bands I was playing in weren't 
becoming rich and famous. Um, and I like playing in bands. And that was very difficult in New York because everybody needs to make money so badly that it's very hard to get good players to coalesce around an idea. I mean, like they do, you know, used to do in England. I mean, they would get together and, you know, decide what kind of music they were going to play and then learn how to play it. And, you know, but they were very focused and everybody did that. And mm -hmm. in New York, it was all about jobbing. You know, I don't know what they call it in Australia, but it was about just getting another $50 gig and another $75 gig and another $100 gig and playing with six different bands and hoping one was going to break and that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. Sure. So my wife and relatives out in California, so we thought we'd go out check out San Francisco. And I went out there and I saw that the clubs out there actually had stages. Okay. You know, I mean, okay. half the clubs in New York you were playing on the floor. There was All right. stage. And they had some good radio stations, and I thought, why not? Um, and so we moved out there, and uh, that turned out to be really great in a lot of ways. I mean, I played with a couple of great bands. I played with one band called the Potato Eaters. I don't, I don't know if I sent you any of that stuff. I don't even know if I have, I mean, I have the records, but I don't have them in MP3. Form. Okay. That was, uh, there was a singer, there was a band called The Residents in, uh, in uh, San Francisco, this sort of crazy band. And the singer from that band was the original singer when I joined and uh, bass player from a guy named Snake Finger, who used to be a, um, Part of that circuit and they toured around it was basically the bass player's band and a pedal steel player who learned to play pedal steel because he thought it would sound good on king crimson records okay. i mean king crimson tunes yeah nice. so uh it, it started giving you an idea what the band was like and the drummer is now the editor of keyboard player magazine but he's also probably the foremost avant-garde free improv free improvisation you know uh drummer and one of the biggest in the world i mean in that small world okay. very, gino robert um so it was a really interesting band and then we got a different singer but we made a couple of records and we did some big gigs in san francisco we sang, it sounded sort of like talking heads okay. you know type thing but for various reasons it never took off and then i was in another band with an amazing singer songwriter who uh you know was Joni Mitchell level quality and it was a great band. Um, but in the meantime, I was also trying to work for a living. I mean, I wasn't making any money in those bands. So yeah, I was sure. working at Gary Brower's out there and Gary's is, he's sort of the, he was the West coast equivalent of John Sir in, uh, in, at Rudy's, you know, oh, okay. Gary, okay. Gary was the guy who did all the work for Joe Satriani and Santana, yeah. Neil Schoen. So I worked there, and he was in the shop called Real Guitars, in the back of Real Guitars, which is a big vintage shop in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And I was working there, and I was also playing country and western in a gay bar in Hayward every Friday and Saturday for 10 years, uh, which was actually a lot of fun when we got a decent rhythm section. And... Uh, and that's pretty much what I did in San Francisco for 12 years. Yeah. Oh, then we, I guess the next step would have been I met this um, blues. Well, I, I used to play blues up in uh, North Beach. I used to go sit in with people up in North Beach. And I sat in with this band um, that had a keyboard player 
in it from a band called the Dynatones, which was a big roots band that toured. And he recommended me for a gig with this blues singer, guitar player, James Armstrong, who was on High Town Records. Mm-hmm. And James had had an incident where he'd gotten his left arm all cut up and, um, and he, uh, he couldn't play guitar. And he had just finished a record for High Town. So um, he he needed a guitar player, and uh, the keyboard player recommended me, and I went down and auditioned. And uh, and uh, it was interesting. It was an interesting comment on San Francisco. That I mean, I'm from New York. When you go and audition for something, you learn all the tunes, uh-huh. you learn them, and then you go in and play them. Of course, yeah. And. I came in with these guys and we played the tunes and they went, wow, you know the tunes. And I said, yeah, isn't that, aren't you supposed to? And then the bass player said to James, uh, wow, James, he sounds just like you. And I thought you were special. And so oh, there goes the gig. But my theory is that, I mean, because I sounded like him, it made him more comfortable having me play the guitar as opposed to trying to sing with somebody who played completely differently. And he gradually came back to where he was playing slide, and then he was playing, excuse me, full guitar. And he was a really good guitar player before he got hurt. And so I toured with him for two years, um, doing the blues circuit. What what and did your what did your rig look like at, at this stage? So this is during the eighties. This was the nineties. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I went through. A, I mean, I've been through. You know. I mean, the rig history is, you know, quickly is New York, you had to play small, you know, yep. because okay. thing, I never played loud until really loud until I got to uh, San Francisco. Uh-huh. And so I was using deluxe reverbs. That was the amp, the okay. New York amp. Yep. And then when I got to San Francisco, uh, I ended up with this insane, you know, it was the era of racks, 80, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, 80. So I was using a, a, blues not a blues junior pro junior as a preamp basically okay and i was running out of that into a marshall cabinet emulator then out of that into a um uh alesis verb whatever whatever they call quadruverb quadruverb exactly splitting that in stereo (laughs) and, and through a power amp into two two cabs and yeah. uh and then at one point i switched to a, a one of the boss or roland gr 20s or whatever they were the the multi-effects rack okay. thing it's that with the quadruple and the funniest thing was when i was playing with the potato eaters down in long beach and uh there um this guy rod piazza was playing in the other room he's a pretty well-known blues guy from la piano player and his guitar player came in and was watching us play and then after we're done and they're done, he comes up to me and goes, you know, when I first saw you with all that stuff, I didn't know what to think. He says, but I got to say, you don't let it get in the way of your sound. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, yeah, I think that's the secret with that. Yeah. But uh, for the country gigs, I was playing, I went through a couple of things. I tried a Fender Twin. I tried a Vibralux, but it wasn't clean enough, mm-hmm. you know, for country. So I was doing a Twin for a while and, and that was just way too heavy to carry around. Oh, um, yeah. So I found the great compromise, um, which was a bandmaster head and various bottoms. Okay. I had a bandmaster head and then a bandmaster reverb head. And that's what I toured with with James, the bandmaster reverb mostly. And 
What was cool about that is I took a 410 Marshall cabinet, which are very light, uh, not like the 412s. Sure. And, and the Bandmaster and the 410 Marshall became sort of a, an old man super reverb and a poor man like super reverb. <laughs> Back then, it was a lot cheaper than buying a super reverb. And I think the cabinet cost me 150 bucks or right. something. Yeah. Or 300 bucks, you know. Whereas old pre CBS supers were going for even then like six, seven hundred dollars. Okay, wow. Um, but the cool thing was, I also had a custom. I had I had had two custom 112s built for the rack setup, the stereo setup. Yeah. And when I on on tour with James, I took. The 410 and the 112, and they were both eight ohm cabinets. Mm -hmm. And the Bandmaster head was a four ohm head, so it acted as kind of a an attenuator. Like if we were in a smaller club, I would use the 410, and so I'm running four ohms into eight ohms, which you know kept the level of the Bandmaster down, and I could yeah, turn it yeah. up. Awesome. And if we we're running a little bigger club, I might bring the the um, 112 was an EV, which was more efficient, but it was yes. still eight ohms. So I'd run into that. And then if we were playing a big club, the 410 fit perfectly on top of the 112, and I'd run them both, which became four ohms. And then I was getting the max power out of that. And I had four 12s and an e I mean four tens and an EV 12. It sounded awesome. <laughs> yeah. so there weren't many clubs where I could do that, but when it worked, it was sure. great. And I also found this thing some guy in L.A. was making. I don't know if you're familiar with Fender amps, but your listeners who are, a lot of them, you can't turn the bass, old Fender amps, you can't turn the bass over two or three, or they just turn tubby. Yeah. Really, yes. they're really tubby. And this guy in L.A. made this. I was already writing for Guitar Player at this point, reviewing stuff, and I reviewed this little thing he made that was it was nothing it was like a tiny little box with nothing in it but what it did it did something to the impedance if you ran it between your guitar and the front end of your amp it did something to the impedance but only on the low end that let you, me turn up the bass to like four or five okay and so i could get more oomph without it crapping out on the bottom so that was my mostly my rig. I mean, James didn't want me using any pedals. It was so funny going from this full rack DL2. The blues, not a no wah-wah pedal, no no nothing. Okay. You know, I think I had a I had a Marshall Governor booster. Oh, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. That was it. Um, which was an interesting change for two years. Um, got down to the basics. Yeah. Um, and then I guess around that time or a little earlier is when Joe Gore um left guitar player to go play with pg harvey yes and he recommended me to take up the slack um and that's sort of how i got started i had been writing for stereophile in new york a friend of mine had gotten me the gig reviewing cds for them okay and um but um so i guess i had some you know writing credentials at that point mm -hmm. and he got me you know, he got me involved with guitar player, and that was sort of the beginning of the writing thing. That's that's awesome. I was going to ask, did you have any? It doesn't sound like you had time to study journalism or anything. You sound like you're gigging. No, no, no. I uh, I uh, I dropped out of college after two and a half years. But I, you know, I tell people it's like I I write by ear. You know, like people play guitar yeah, by ear. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I read I read 
and I read so many books over the years. I mean, I've just read, I love to read, and I read, I was an English major nominally at Stony Brook, but I was mostly majoring in music and drugs um, <laughs> at the time. But no, I never, I never saw, I'll tell you what, um, my best teacher of journalism, of writing, was my editor at Stereophile. Okay. Because I would write the reviews, and he would edit them, and I would read them in the magazine, and I, they would sound like me, only better. So I would compare that to what I wrote and see, oh, I see what he did. He took this out. He fixed this. He did this this way. And that that was the best education in writing I could have gotten, you know, aside from just, you know, the the um, the education of reading. I mean, people, there's plenty of people who tell anyone who wants to write. If you want to write, you got to read. Mm -hmm. And and. uh that's where it came from. But no, I have no formal training. But the other funny thing is of the five members of the potato eaters, three of us ended up as editors. Oh, um, really? Yeah. And, uh, and only one of us had graduated college. Gino graduated, but guy, the baseball, <laughs> he ended up as an editor of something also. And he never, he never graduated college either. That's cool. So kids don't go to college. No, <laughs> So you're writing for guitar player in the '90s. Um, that's got to be an exciting time. Lots of, lots of gear coming through. Lots of great guitar players. Well, it was fun, and it was that. That was sort. Of, it's interesting because that sort of coincides with my introduction to sort of modern guitar. Okay. In yeah. a sense, because the first, I was doing gear reviews for them, but the first feature I pitched to them was a pair of Finnish guitar players. Raul Bjorkenheim, who's a great, great guitar player, still around doing great stuff. And this guy, Jimmy Suman, mm -hmm. who unfortunately had health issues, I guess, and doesn't play anymore. But they pl both had played in this guy, Edward Bessela's band, this drummer in Finland, and uh, who was sort of the modern Sun Ra of Finland. Um, you know, he, he just sort of, he would gather his minions together and rehearse them endlessly and, you know, do this really out sort of jazz type stuff, jazz rock, I guess you say. Okay. So I went to guitar player and I met with, uh, I forgot one of the old guard guys and a, a guy who's now a friend of mine, James Rotundi, who was an editor there at the time. Oh, okay. And, uh, and I said, I want to do an article on these two guitar players. And they said, but nobody's ever heard of them. And I said, that's why I want to do it. <laughs> I said, I don't need to read Guitar Player to read another article about Jimi Hendrix or Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah. I know about Jimi Hendrix. You know, what I get out of Guitar Player personally is, oh, who's this guy? Yeah. Let me check him out. So they were, they were the modern guys. And it's, it's interesting because roughly around the same time, um, I mean, I'd always been into, into effects, and with that second band that I was in in, uh, in San Francisco, I got into looping. I had one of the early Elisis um, jam man. Was it made by Elisis? The jam oh, man. Um, the original jam yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it was made by, uh, not Elisis, uh, Lexicon. Lexicon, that's it. The Lexicon rap jam man. And I was into looping and stuff like that, and... Okay. Uh, and I did a session 
for this guy. And the singer on the session was this woman, Ina Kumanis, who has sung on a bunch of ECM records. Um, she used to go over to Norway all the time to do records on ECM and with uh, Bar Phillips and uh, Marilyn Mazur. And she, when we met, she said, I know this guitar player that you would really like. His name's Ivan Arset. And I don't know, no, I guess I hadn't heard of him yet, but I, I guess I was rooting around in the record bins and I saw this Nils Peter Molbar record, uh, Khmer, I think is how you pronounce it. And the guitarist was Ivan Arset, and I took it home. And that was my other introduction to modern guitar. I mean, uh, just this guy, he blew my mind, I mean, more than anybody had since Bill Frizzell, probably. Mm -hmm. um, and what kind of so, stuff was he doing? What? Well, he was, it was, it was very ambient-based and sound-based, but he could obviously play his butt off. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, it was just all these things I was following, you know, I was sort of moving in that same direction without having actually heard anybody else doing it. I mean, you know, we did, I mean, I'd heard Adrian Ballou do his animal stuff and I was into his stuff. Yep, King yep, sure. But, um, but I was, you know, just feeling my way, especially with this band, me Jane that I was in, we did, we did a, a month of, uh, Joni Mitchell sort of tribute night at this club mm -hmm. where everybody, it was us every week. And then the opening act every week also had to do a Joni Mitchell cover. Everybody had to do a Joni Mitchell cover. Mm -hmm. And we did uh, the Jungle Line, and so I was making all these animal sounds and you know working <laughs> all that stuff out. And I'd been doing the looping and a lot of ambient stuff. Yeah. And I heard this guy, and I'm going, yeah, that's that's what I want to do. I want to move in this direction. And he was just amazing at it. Um, so I got heavily into him, and uh, and then. Um, I've completely lost my place, so I don't know where were we going from there. Oh, talking about um... oh, guitar player. Uh, that's what yeah, I was yeah. saying. That's, I pitched those guys. You know, I don't know where I discovered them, but I found them somehow and totally got into it. And then, um, yeah, and guitar player was it was a great place. That's when I first started doing features. Okay, cool. And you started writing books. Is it was that um, later? Yeah, when I moved out. Well, when I first moved out to San Francisco, I had nothing to do. I had no job. And I, um, and I figured, uh, I would pitch a book to Hal Leonard and, you know, they say, write about what you know. And I, you know, what I know about actually playing is minimal, but, you know, as, as I used to have this hound dog Taylor, uh, t-shirt that said on the back when, when I die, people will say he couldn't play for, <laughs> but he sure made it sound good. Yeah, right. Made it sound pretty. And that's, you know, if, if there was anything I knew I did know is, you know, from working at Rudy's all those years and yes. from really investigating it, I knew sound. I knew how to get good sounds out of instruments and how the effects work. And I was into effect. So I said, well, you know, I pitched Hal Leonard on, uh, why don't I write a book called Getting Great Guitar Sounds? And uh, they went for it, you know, gave me some piddling advance. Mm -hmm. And uh, and but I had nothing else to do, so I wrote it, and it ended up it's still selling today in e in you know thirty some odd years later and as an ebook. Yeah. But it sold, considering they never did an ounce of publicity for it, and half the time it was hard to find in the stores. I still made 
some decent money from that book. That's great. So, and that's um, been, um, has that been updated as well with more recent? I did, I did a revision. That's a long, weird story. But uh, okay. I, they called me about five years later to, do, to revise it. So I revised it about, I mean, this is already, or 10 years, I don't know, it been 10 years later, but I revised it. It's been 20 years, but I purposely wrote it dealing with first principles, basic principles. In other words, okay. this is how reverb works. This is how delay works, not specific pedals sure. or specific guitars or any of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, you know, it's probably due for an update just because of plugins and, you know, and, and I mean, these days I play through an iPad as much as anything else. So there's a lot of that stuff going on. But I've, I've done other versions, like for Hal Leonard, I did all about effects, which uh, which was more recently. It's still a while back now. Oh, okay. But um, that so that covers a lot of the same territory, but it, just on effects getting great guitar sounds and you know i talked about the wood you know and uh the guitar itself and all the principles of that and stuff like that so you know people keep saying yeah why don't you do another book well i've written everything i know at this point okay. <laughs> i don't know anything else yeah. but i i can probably figure out a way to repackage it i've done it uh you know i did a book for ik multimedia on in conjunction with uh cengage uh getting great guitar sounds out of Amplitude. Okay. So yep. it's supposed to be sold in conjunction with Amplitude. And uh, and that's, you know, I did a one for line six about the pod, you know, getting how to get different guitar player sounds out of the pod. Okay, yeah. Stuff like that, so. Awesome. So you've really kept up on moving trends in gear and, and you seem to have, um, I guess like a lot of us, you know, you've gone along and you've, you've explored the, the different areas. You mentioned iOS um based stuff do you want to tell us about about your rig you use is it um are you prehab nashville kind of stuff what you what rig you well use? yeah i'm sort of going i mean i it's i've been shifted and you know i just got into the ios stuff and it's blowing my mind i mean it's, <laughs> it's uh you know i was doing stuff through a laptop after i moved back to new york i started um just backtracking a little bit when i moved back to new york uh I, I was the gear editor at Guitar One magazine, this magazine in New York, after mm -hmm. I moved back. And uh, so that's how, I mean, I kept up on gear trends. I sort of had to. It was my job. Yeah. And But at the same time, when Guitar One was bought by Future Music um, out of England, they do a, a magazine called Future Music and Computer Music. Yeah. Uh, we started doing a Future Music USA version, and I started working on that as well and that started getting me into the whole electronic music thing okay and then um that guy i mentioned earlier james rotundi he was had moved back to new york also and he was the future music magazine and he introduced me to dave hill who at the time was the main guy with ableton live in new york oh, okay and cool dave was playing down at uh, this thing called a warper party on Houston Street with Sean Pelton, who's the Saturday Night Live drummer, one of my favorite drummers of all time. And Dave's a drummer too. And they were gonna be using this new thing, Ableton Live, and linking their computers and playing and doing all this kind of stuff. And I thought it sounds interesting, so I went down and checked it out, and it was interesting. And then 
the Warper Party thing sounded interesting. So I went to the next one thinking, well, it's going to be a bunch of guys with laptops and, you know, and, and looking like they're reading their email. Yeah, yeah. But I was blown <laughs> away that there, there were three different guitar players there doing different stuff. One guy had a laptop built into his guitar. Okay. Literally, complete laptop built into his guitar. Awesome. Another guy called an Overclock Orchestra was doing TV theme music. But his own prog rock arrangements of it, where he played keyboards with one hand and guitar with the other hand, and was playing to tracks and stuff. And another guy was doing like fusion. And then there was this other guy who kept coming down, this guy Moldover, who had a controller built into his guitar controllers. I'm thinking, there's obviously room for guitar in this world. But anyway, there were a lot of people over the time I was there that were doing stuff. So I got it, I started getting into that. So I got and I started performing at the Warper parties going through the laptop, using Ableton Live, yep. um, you know, doing looping and, and processing and all this kind of stuff. And it was a lot of fun. And that was the one thing I thought I was going to miss when I moved to Nashville because I didn't expect to find much of that here. But actually, there's a fairly um, developed avant-garde scene in Nashville Okay, cool. in general. So that I've had a chance to do some gigs some laptop things here. But then the iOS thing started, I guess I'm trying to think where that started. It's, I will, some of my, the people I've written about in the magazine, like uh, Knox Chandler. Yeah, who, yeah. You know, who used to play with Cindy Lauper and yeah. with uh, David Kahan from uh, whatever that band is. And, you know, he's done a lot of stuff. He's in Berlin now and he's doing a lot of gigs through iPhone. Okay. And, uh, and uh, this guy, Dino, J.A. Dean, he's not a guitar player per se, but he's one of the guys who almost invented modern sampling performance with John Hassel. Okay. You know, and so he's been doing a lot of iOS stuff. And, and this guy, Rick Cox, who does a lot of soundtracks out in L.A., who I've written about, they're all doing iOS stuff. And so I finally said this looks like it's something coming up and, and it's going to start happening more and more. Mm. And if I'm going to be writing about gear for my magazine or for whomever, I better start learning about that. So I convinced my wife I needed to buy an iPad <laughs> and we bought an iPad. And then it's, you know, I mean, we've all heard of gas, you know, gear acquisition syndrome. Yeah. The, you know, the problem with apps is they're like $5, you know, yes. they're not, yeah. Hundred, as somebody said, yeah, but they can rapidly add up to two or three hundred if you keep doing them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, but I haven't. I mean, I, I fortunately, I have the guidance of guys like Knox and Rick and and yeah. Dino, and um, and I see what they're using, and so I thought, wow, wouldn't this be cool? Well, I didn't even think of it actually. The the, the technology preceded my imagination. I went to a NAMM show and this um, company, iConnect, came out with this thing called the Audio 4 Plus, um, which I've written about on the site, which allows you to plug an iPad into the interface along with your computer and bring up the iPad as a send on, I can bring it up as a send in Ableton. Okay, cool. So, um, so it integrates so, with your existing stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, cool. you know, because I've put a lot of time into Ableton, it's nice to use them together. And, yep. you know, I can, I can then 
process stuff that I've done in Ableton on the iPad, and I can process um, the iPad stuff in Ableton, and I'm just running back and forth. I mean, the more I work with the iPad, the less I feel I need the computer. Okay, yeah. Um, just because what you can do now is it's just amazing. I mean, you know, this Bias FX. Um, there's a company called. Yeah. I'm not. I don't know. Bias is their name, but they do a, a thing called Bias, and they do Bias FX, which yes, is yeah. a guitar modeler, which yeah. is the best sounding modeler I've ever heard and wow. felt. I'm using. You know, yeah, I'm using the Bias. Um, just the amp modeler at the moment and right. it's awesome it's so good and you can you can import irs into that too can't you like uh, uh impulse responses or yes something? Uh, i'm not sure for bias I, th- I think you can you can for bias effects definitely bias i'm not sure um bias, bias is where you can get into the amp you know and do the tubes yeah yeah, yeah that's it right. yeah yeah so i have both and they integrate together um okay. mostly i just use i mean i can use bias effects and then I'm still, you know, working between audio, um, audio bus, which can be, has its share of problems. And then I just discovered this um, mixer. God, I should probably open this up and look at it because I have no brain anymore and I can't, I can't remember anything. But uh, who makes this? Aum. It's called AUM by Climactica. It's it's a virtual mixer that goes on your iPad, and you can put up as many channels as you want. You can bust things to other things. So I'm trying that to see if that works better than audio bus in terms of putting together um, the bias with I mean, there are these unbelievable granular processors like yes, borderlands yep. and um, and eye density. I just discovered eye density, which is amazing, mm-hmm. and then sampler, which is the other big one um, that Dino turned me on to. Which is we you know, and all of these allow you to record your guitar into them and and turn it into a loop that you can do insane processing with or. Some of it, like Borderlands, is ways to set it up that you can be processing it in real time as you're going through it, awesome. um, or identity. You know, it'll process it in real time, and it's just a whole new set of sounds. And it's, you know, I mean, especially <laughs> to say when you get to my age, it's like the reason I'm not that into playing Strats and Tellys anymore, as much as I love them and I've grown up with them. Mm-hmm. My favorite guitar now is I have a Harmony Rebel. Okay, that sounds amazing, but you know, I mean, I've just, I love the sound of classic Les Paul and Strat and Telly, but I've heard it for 50 years, you know, I'm, I'm, my ears just want to hear something, something different. Um, so I like oddball guitars and I like these oddball effects. That's cool. I think that sums up your career a little bit. You've got this, this harmony guitar, so like this... Yeah goofy goofy guitar going through this crazy ios stuff like you're, you're mashing these ideas together i love that well i i i try to mash the ideas together I, I i haven't tried the harmony through this stuff i mean i'm sure it would work um and it has the prerequisite for that kind of stuff you know i need a bridge that i can play behind so the harmony has a big speed yeah, on it okay behind it i also have a, a Fender Blacktop Jazzmaster that I've put way too much modification money into. Okay. Um, yeah, what, like, but, what have you done? Well, I've got, 
I've got a Seymour Duncan Ridge pickup that I didn't fortunately didn't have to buy because I was doing some work for them. But MJ at Seymour Duncan wound me a humbucker for the bridge because it comes with a humbucker, so I replaced that. And then I replaced the neck Jazzmaster pickup with a humbucker that fits right into that slot. And, you okay. know, it's on the Jazzmaster type thing. That sounds terrific. I had the whole thing rewired because I wanted a get into blending pickups. So I had them drill, take the input jack from the top and drill it into the side and turn that into the tone. And then now I have two volumes and a tone. I put the mastery bridge on, yeah. uh, you know, it, it still needs fret work and you know, to really play <laughs> properly in the setup, but, but it's getting there. It's cool. getting there. Um, and that, that's a good one for, for, the modern stuff because I can play behind the bridge and I you know there's the harmony string Listen. there's a fair bit of string length on the on the jazz master isn't it behind yeah well, the it's, a, it's a B major the first three the first three notes are a B major that's handy. plenty of string you know <laughs> which is funny because I just got this uh, I don't know if you can see it in the back uh, it, uh, one of the new Hagstroms and it has uh, a jazz master type bridge okay and it's an E it's an E major Okay, cool. Behind behind the bridge, it's uh, you know, for whatever reason the length of. That's awesome. But um, yeah, That's... it's it it's. I mean, I don't know if you read my prehab uh, mission statement, but it's you know the, I I realize the modern stuff and making these sounds is the logical extension of what I've been doing. Yeah, great. For years, because I worked with singer songwriters for years, and it was all about adding, you know, the proper emotional sounds to me that's what it's always been about to me yeah, it cool. all starts with sound you know if i mean you can play all the notes you want but if it doesn't sound good to me i don't want to hear it sure there's a there's a um one of the prehab tunes is crooked picture and that kind of melds some of your acoustic influences with the more uh experimental and ambient kind of sounds i guess yeah right well that's when i had my ganjo they call it down in nashville it was six oh, string, six string. Yeah, yeah. Tuned like a guitar? Yeah, it's tuned just like a guitar. Okay, I put cool. that on it. And uh, yeah, that's, I mean, ultimately, that's what I like to do. I mean, my favorite music is stuff that melds some of the more traditional stuff. I mean, I like people like Fenez and, and, yeah. and you know, and and, uh, um, and you know, people who make just crazy yeah, yeah. noises, um, you know, like Steon Vesteros and people like that. But but my some of my favorite music is when people somehow integrate, you know, like Ivan Arset to me manages to integrate just great guitar playing yes. with those kind of sounds yeah, with cool. those kind of 
out type sounds and, and that's why i have also a roots modern section when you call i was just posting my uh lucinda williams review of her new record which has bill frizzell on it and uh greg lease and I, I just love roots music where people are incorporating you know something modern into it um but yeah yeah cool let's um can we talk about guitar modern and and by association roots modern that's the website you formed a few years ago um what was the what was your mission with that well i found this was when i was back in new york i found myself spending way too much time on youtube <laughs> tracking down weird guitar players i mean guys you know doing the kind of stuff the the, the guitar players that i write about in, in guitar modern people like stian and Ivan and you know videos of, of people Bill Horace um, you know just and I was astounded how many there were worldwide mm -hmm. you know people doing interesting stuff and I realized I'm on Facebook I could post the videos on Facebook and I have a lot of guitar friends on Facebook sure. but of those guitar friends how many of them are going to be interested in this kind of guitar playing yeah right I mean you know a, a lot of them aren't I mean some of them are but a lot of them aren't and I thought, what about, why don't I just put together a blog slash magazine, you know, that's just dedicated to this and I'll put it up and see if it finds an audience, mm -hmm. you know, see if people can find it. I can put it all in one place and if people are interested, they can find it there. Cool. And, you know, like anything else, you do it for love. You know, yeah. I taught myself WordPress, you know, got a little help and built the site so I can maintain it myself. Mm -hmm and uh and started posting this stuff and people like yourself and others started coming you know if you build it they will come <laughs> and uh and uh i i was amazed i mean it was a slow build i mean that you know it's still not you know eddie van halen and you know the it's still not something that appeals to your you know 12 year old in his basement mm. you know wanting to rock out but I was amazed from all over, you know, all over the world, a lot of people in England, Italy, Germany, Japan, you know, people, Australia, people just, you know, when I was checking out where people were coming in from, it was all over, and the United States, they were coming in from all over, and it built and built, and to the point where I thought maybe, I was starting to think maybe I can get somebody to advertise on it, yeah. and I got a call from some guy out of the blue saying, hey, I, I'm, you know, a marketing guy for this company, we want to advertise. Wow, fantastic. So, yeah, so I've now got a couple of advertisers. I've been trying to get some more, but, you know, I, I need to build the numbers. Right. So I, I'm getting into Instagram now. Um, I'm finding that's, that's actually a great tool for, because with the hashtags, you know, you can, you can garner people from all over, you know, that might not find the site on their own. But, okay. You know, they might have hash. They might be looking for hashtag guitar or hashtag avant guitar or hashtag whatever. You know, and, and it's like any other magazine. Certain people are going to blow up the site. You know, Adrian Ballou sure. always, is, you know, get a big spike. David Torn's going to get a big spike. Right. This this kid Nick Reinhardt. I don't know if you've heard him. I would call him a kid. I don't know how old he is, but but I mean, he's the next generation uh behind you know nels klein and adrian and david um his band terra Mellos, and uh he's unbelievable i mean in terms of 
the way he uses effects totally integrated into his playing and and sings and carries the bass player on his shoulders and <laughs> you know i mean it puts on an amazing show so every time i tag him all of a sudden there's a big spike because okay. he's developed this huge following um so it's you know it's been great it's been very rewarding and it's become i mean andy summer's publicist called me to okay. say andy wants to be interviewed for guitar modern wow because his last record was great and very avant-garde okay you know it wasn't something that would normally go in the uh regular magazines so that's been pretty much the saga cool and um part of the part of the site you've got a like a subsection called um is it roots modern yeah roots modern yeah because i i mean i that i kind don't... of blurs the lines a little bit more well yeah a little bit i mean it's it's as i was saying before i mean i i my personally or as you were saying about me i mean i go i only go to the two ends i mean i play blues i play country yeah. i'll play you know real rootsy singer songwriter stuff and then I'll play through a laptop or an iOS device making noise. Yeah. And I'm not really interested much in the middle. Okay. You know, I mean, I used to be into pop, but I'm, you know, pop has left me and I've left it. Sure. And, and um, so, but pop, I, in fairness, I have to credit pop for getting me interested in sounds yeah. because that's, you know, I mean, blues, it's you plug into the amp, you know, yeah. country, you basically plug into the amp. Yeah. But, uh, I played pop for a lot of years and playing pop, you have to learn, Oh, how do you get that sound? Oh, there's an interesting sound. Yeah. And I really got into more sounds, but I no longer do that. But I, I, you know, I also, there's, I mean, if you check out the site, there isn't a lot of roots modern stuff on it okay. because a, I don't want to totally balance, you know, throw it off balance, but B there aren't that many artists that fulfill my definition of it, which is, you know, their music has to be thoroughly rooted in blues, country, you know, roots, music, but it has to add something, you know, to the lexicon, or it has to bring, you know, make it feel like it was recorded today, not that they're trying to sound like it was recorded in 1962. Yeah, sure. Um, um, so what sort of players um, get a run there? Well, there's a guy, C.C. Adcock, out of Lafayette, Louisiana, who unfortunately only does a record every 10 years. <laughs> but uh, uh, And he's overdue for the last one. Um, but he he does, you know, he grew up playing uh, Louisiana music and Zydeco music. And he's a real character. And he, but there's, you know, the, so the music is truly rooted in that stuff. But there's definitely modern production techniques and, and you know, the sound is is modern without losing that feel mm -hmm. you know i mean there's some stuff there's a a, a band called snake farm that I, they haven't done many records either but they do old um old folk songs but they do them with like hip-hop grooves and great guitar player okay. um, playing you know some cool guitar parts, uh, just stuff like that. I mean, there've been bands over the years. Little Axe was one. Um, oops, that's weird. Um, they were the guys, Little Axe was the, uh, the band. They were a Sugar Hill band based on the Sugar Hill band that did hip hop, but they did this great blues based record. Um, I love those 
the R.L. Burnside records that they produced at Fat Possum with where they used loops and hip hop grooves and uh-huh. and sampling and they sample these old blues guys voices and do stuff. There's a lot of stuff like like that. And as I was saying, the new Lucinda record, you know, because you have Bill Frizzell playing on it, yeah, he's awesome. not play it standard. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the that's the kind of stuff. And usually there's enough each year to garner, you know, a list at the end of the year of three or four or five, and maybe I'll write some up if something really impresses me. But that's not a, it's not a major part. It's just an outlet for. If I find some of this stuff and I can't write it up for the regular guitar magazines, yep. uh, then it gives me an outlet for it. Yeah, cool. So um, if I can jump back over to the more regular guitar magazines, you write for Premier Guitar as well, which is um, probably in the last few years. I mean, they've been around for a while, but in the last few years, that's they seem to have really taken off, particularly online. Yeah. Um, you spend a lot of time reviewing gear. I, I, I um. You mentioned in one of your posts it's a golden age for guitar pedals. It was hard to find a, a bad guitar pedal these days. It is. I mean, I mean, you know, it's it's they're like condiments. You know, it's like <laughs> it's like is ketchup worse than mustard? You know, yeah. and, and and if you've ever been in an American supermarket, you can see that you know you'll see <laughs> that there's 75 brands of <laughs> corn kernels. You know, I yeah. mean. It's it's not some are better than others. They're just, sure. they may vary slightly, but uh, <clears throat> but it's there. Yeah, it is it is hard to find a really bad. I mean, they still exist. I'll every now and then I'll get a pedal and I go, no, I can't I can't do anything with this or a guitar or something. Sure. But um, but for the most part, no. I mean, it's an amazing era for guitar gear, or you know, and the prices are you know new stuff is ridiculous. I mean, you can get. Seen a spectacular, well, I don't know, spectacular, but a thoroughly playable guitar for a hundred fifty dollars, something like that, or less. I mean, the big joke in in Nashville is there's a guitar player, Jack Pearson. When I came to Nashville, I mean, I'm in the guitar business. I had never heard of Jack Pearson, and every great guitar player I met in Nashville, I'd say, "Oh, you sound really good," and they'd say, "Well, thanks, but you should hear Jack Pearson." And finally, I heard Jack Pearson, and yeah, he's amazing. <laughs> I wrote him up for guitar player a while back. Okay. But he plays a ninety-dollar Squire Bullet guitar. <laughs> not even a good Squire. He's got the bullet. No, not even the good Squire. Squire <laughs> and some people maintain he does it just to, you know, take the piss out of all the other guitar players in Nashville. It's okay. like, yeah, you know, you've got all your cool custom gear, but I still play better than you. <laughs> And he does, and he's you know he sounds great, and uh, I mean it's just that that era we live in, you know they you can get thoroughly playable stuff cheap, um, Earthquaker pedals just to give a plug for one of my advertisers. Yeah, and I I did a piece on them for Premier Guitar long before um, they were advertisers, and his he comes out of the Mike Matthews school electroharmonics of. He wants to make great sounding stuff that people can buy at a reasonable price. And in the boutique world, he took some heat for that because the the you know the, the wisdom in the boutique world is if it doesn't cost three hundred dollars, it's it can't possibly sound good. Yes. But uh, but he doesn't care, and they're doing amazingly well. I mean, because he they make 
really cool weird stuff. They make really cool basic stuff, and it's all very well made and all sounds good. And, you know, they've developed a huge following. But the, the funny part is, yeah, this is my business to write about this stuff. But almost daily, people come up to me and say, oh, man, have you heard this pedal? And I go, no, I've never even heard of that pedal. Yeah, right. Oh, have you heard this amp? Nope, never even heard of it. Have you heard this guitar? We are guitars less so, but there's so many people making boutique mm. amps these days and and boutique pedals and stuff. It's it's impossible to keep up. It's like the record <laughs> business. I mean, I used to know every, I used to be aware of every artist, you know, decently major artist that was out, you know, on, on because I spent a lot of time in record stores, at least filing through the bins. Now, there's no way to keep track. It's all balkanized. But, but you know, that's good news. I mean, good news for the players. You can, you know, you can just find so many choices. It's, it's yeah, there's some great stuff out there. Yeah, cool. Um, I guess that's one of the great things about the web and web 2.0 as we used to call it just the web now, but um, yeah, you've got the opportunity to look for stuff you're really into to, to chase up stuff. Um, for players, you could find a site like Guitar Modern or um, if for whatever reason you need another Tube Screamer, another twist on the Tube Screamer, you're going <laughs> to find, you know, a whole bunch of that kind of stuff. That's that's kind of cool. Well, absolutely. And I mean, and also, I mean, everybody's doing stuff mail order these days with the 30-day return thing. But yeah. also, I mean, you, you all you have to do is watch a Pete Thorne video or or a pro guitar shop video, and you know, almost every pedal known to man, one way or the other, is being demoed by those guys. Yeah. And you can hear people who can really play, yeah. play the stuff and judge for yourself. You know, does is that a sound you want? Yeah, it's amazing. That's a, that's a whole other industry, isn't it? I'm going to um talking to a bloke called Brett Kingman, Australian guitarist. Um, but he does oh, some sure. stuff. He does some stuff for pro guitar, and um, yeah, he's he's a he's a fantastic player. But he's got this whole side career, um, reviewing stuff online, like really high quality reviews, and that's um, yeah. Well, yeah. Is. I mean, that's that's the story of the modern age. Is everybody's got to everybody's got to multitask, you know, I mean, uh, um, I just did an interview with this local guitar player, Guthrie Trapp, who's a terrific country guitar player, mm-hmm. and uh, and one of the top guys in Nashville, but he never stops, I mean, he's teaching online, he's, uh, he's, you know, starting a school, he's got a steady Wednesday night show that he does in town, mm-hmm. he does, people do that, and the, the gear thing is a, um, you know, it's an outlet for some guys, and some guys do it better than others, and some guys are more into it than others. What have you got coming up at the moment? What's what's on the bench, so to speak? Well, um, well, I, I, at this point, I'm just trying to get uh, you know the numbers up a little. I'm trying to post more. I, I slacked off a little bit on posting on guitar modern. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I find the more I do, of course, the more the numbers go up. So I need to um, concentrate on it a little more so I can get more advertisers. Sure. So, you know, it's a cycle. I mean, if I can get more advertisers and get more money coming in from that, it justifies spending more time on it. And I spend more time on it, get more numbers, maybe get... I don't want to... I mean, I never want to get... I, I don't want to 
fill the page with advertisements. That's one thing I don't like about a lot of other sites, and I sure. don't want to do that. But if I get enough numbers, then you know, ultimately I can raise the prices with the advertisers I already have. So um, that would work just as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, here's the thing with guitar players that we know well. If you're reading a guitar interview and there's a couple of ads for guitar pedals or something, I think they're more happy than not happy. So a couple of ads. Well, that's fine. I mean, well. yeah, I know that. I mean, I'm, I'm fine with that. But I mean, one of my selling points is that it's targeted advertising. In other words, that yes. it's... it's it's. I want the ads to be as interesting as the article. Yeah, sure. Example, I want it to be stuff you do want to look at. So, I mean, I'll be happy to take it. I just don't want, you know, play guitar and get girls. You know, I mean, yeah, there's, yeah, sure. You can get that stuff through Google Ads and stuff like that. I, I don't want to do that. Yeah. But I, I'm working on that. I mean, my other project is to try and just get more playing. Mm-hmm happening down in Nashville, just both through the laptop and doing singer-songwriter stuff. I just did a uh, a songwriter party the other night, and uh, I played this this harmonica player plays there, P.T. Gazelle, and he's spectacular. He's like Howard Levy. He can play, um, he plays a diatonic harmonica, but he can play all the notes. So he can play Billy Strayhorn's Lush Life on a basic... Wow. Awesome. Blues harmonica, and we did a duet of uh, "Here, There, and Everywhere" by the Beatles. I just played guitar and accompanied him on the harmony "Rebel." And uh, somebody called him and wants us to do their wedding. You know, do a thing for their wedding. Fantastic. So that would that'll be fun. Um, but just I, I'm looking for songwriters. You know, somebody that that does need a guitar player and something that's interesting to me sure. to do. At this point, I, I I'm just not looking for gigs. So there's that. Plus, my wife and I have gotten into photography, and I've been in a couple of shows down here. I do that as well. Um, trying to do more of that, and um, you know, we, it's just Nashville is just a great place to do stuff. It's very, it's very doable. You know, it's it's very handleable. Um, you know, New York is very overwhelming. Okay. Whereas Nashville, it's still a relatively small town, and if you want to do something you can meet somebody and find somebody to help you do it. Um, but there's a great guy, Chris Davis, down here who puts on um, avant-garde shows. And so I'm hoping to do some more shows with him um, and things like that. And that's, you know, that's pretty much the idea. Yeah, cool. And how about the writing? Have you got any, anything on the page um, at the moment? I have a book that I'm, considered, that I'm trying to put together, a book idea that I'm trying to put together. Not to mention writing my memoirs. <laughs> okay, great. I don't, I don't know if I'm gonna uh, ever get around to that. But as my f late friend once said to me, "You're not getting any younger. You better get on it." <laughs> um, but so there's that writing. Um, you know, I, I want, I, I wouldn't mind doing more stuff. We were talking about Premier Guitar, and they've been great. Um, it's funny, half their staff lives in Nashville at the moment. Okay. So, um, so that works out. And uh, and they've been real open to doing so. Like I did a thing on uh, extended guitar techniques for them. Yeah. So and I'm doing uh, a piece on Stian Vesterhus for them, who's as avant-garde as guitar gets okay. these days. Fantastic. So um, and they're open to it. So you know, God bless them, and they pay decent. And, <laughs> and so I, I wouldn't mind doing more for them, you know, as well as guitar player. I like, you know, I love 
both those magazines. I like, you know, all the people involved in both of them. So it, it works out. You know, it's just about doing what you like with people you like. Michael, it's been fantastic talking to you today. Really fascinating um, listening to your amazing career spanning all sorts of guitar areas, um, all sorts of styles and, and opportunities. So um, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Matt. Thanks for having me. Okay, cheers. Have a great day. You too. Thanks, mate. So there you go. That was my interview with Michael Ross. What a amazing career he's had. So he was in the marching band with Steve Tyler. He saw Jimi Hendrix play in his school hall. Mark Knopfler used to sell the odd set of guitar strings when they were hanging out at Rudy's Music when he worked there. Amazing. Plus all the cool stuff he's doing uh, as a journalist and uh, as the curator of um, Guitar Modern. Definitely check out that website. It's very, very cool. And I love his tracks. I love that Prehab Nashville stuff he's got going on. Man, cool tracks. Alright, as promised, here's a bit more of Jason King jamming over our backing track. Now, if you want to do this, do it. Go to Guitar... I was going to say Guitar Modern. That's not my site. Go to guitarspeakpodcast.libson.com. Download our backing track for free. Play over it and send it in. We'd love to hear. Anyway, I'm going to stop talking so you can hear uh, Jason King playing. He's playing a Strat. It's plugged into an Axe FX. You know what? He bought his Axe FX unit off Brett Kingman, our guest on episode 5. Brett had a spare one. Offloaded it to Jason, who's now doing some good stuff with it. Sounds awesome. All right. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time. Thank you.